Well done. Feels like I'm speaking to a long lost friend. I know it's been a while. How you been? Yeah, all good. Summer break's been uh, yeah, been good. I've been I've been really looking forward to catching up and chatting and um, and usually just listening to your wise commentary on uh, the football industry and me piggybacking off that um, interesting insight. No, not at all. It's uh, I always enjoy our chats both sides with Dan. I think uh, all of the stuff, all of the the stuff that we don't know about, you're the one who who brings it to life. So I think it's a it's a two way street. Yeah. Well, it's a good mutual appreciation society. So I'll take that. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> Very good. So I think uh, I think we wanted to chat about the season ahead. A kind of nice woolly topic to get to get us going, really. Yeah, I uh, I wasn't sure where you wanted to start with it, but. Um, uh, the the reason why I thought this might be a good um, starting position as well, it might just be for the basis of further conversations we can have. But I don't know what you feel like, and I know you've talked in a lot about uh, a lot in the past about competition structure and player load and uh, the amount of games and everything else that's going on. But it, it it genuinely feels, and maybe the the point that I'm going to make in a second will sort of bring it to life. But it genuinely feels like we haven't had a break. There hasn't been yeah. a football break. Um, since the end of last season, it sort of we went to uh, Nations League and then we went uh, League, whatever, losing track of uh, the different competitions. And then we went, obviously, to the Euros as well, to the extent that the Euros final coincided or was it the same weekend as the Charity Shield. Um, yeah. So it almost felt like the overlap of the, the summer tournament competition completely aligned with the, the sort of showpiece game for the beginning of the season to come and I'm not sure whether it just flummoxed me a little bit to the extent that firstly the, the charity shield was at um uh, was at Leicester um whilst the the Lionesses were obviously winning um the Euros but just be interested in your views generally about your feeling about the end of last season to the beginning of this and obviously then the 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 cutoff in, in November to December also with with Qatar yeah I think I think you're right um in the way so and actually, I think back to the Nations League, that was really, I mean, horrible is maybe the wrong word for it, but it, it wasn't a great period of football because you could tell players were absolutely knackered. They had very little interest in the competition, um, full stop. You know, it was not, it was a bit too far away from the World Cup to kind of be World Cup related. And it was sort of a competition, but it was, you know, the Nations League struggling a bit for identity. Um, and I remember I was actually in Europe at the time during the Nations League, um, and speaking to people, not just in England, where I think we can often have quite a cynical view of, of various UEFA competitions that, that have sprouted up over, over recent years. And everyone was the same. Whether it was chance someone from Switzerland, chance someone from Italy, chance someone from, um, uh, from, from one of the Balkan countries. And, and everyone was a bit like, this, this Nations League doesn't really make sense. Like The players need a break. And, and a lot of them were coming at it from a club perspective, but they kind of understood it. And then, as you say, then... Yeah, into July we had um, the Euros, which I think, obviously, going forward, women's football will take its kind of pride of place in <coughs> in July predominantly, would be my guess. Um, if you think of the calendar and how much the calendar kind of squeezes into into June with Champions League finals now, and obviously its own summer tournaments, and the women's um, would, would make sense often to, to sit in that July period. Um, so we, I think we, we're going to have to get used to that going forward. And actually, you know, at a personal level, I just found the women's game just really nice. Um, I, I, I don't know, it was just something a bit different, right, um, to enjoy, particularly obviously the tournament being here in the UK. was um, it, it felt a bit different to what we see on the men's game. And I, I quite appreciated that because I think the cadence of the men's season 
you know, as we said, with the Nations League, had really gotten quite um, quite tiring. And so, yeah, and now into, into the season, obviously, I think it's the earliest start to a, to a Premier League season. Um, certainly must be one of the earliest to a Football League season um, ever. Um, and so it's kind of leapt on you. And, you know, in, the, in, the, in our world as well, it's kind of very early in the transfer window in some respects. It's rare you have a whole month of, of football before the transfer window closes. Um, and that obviously means that you've got this kind of simmering discussion throughout which, which i never think is that helpful but but it is there um and then yeah it, it's and then as i think about the, the whole season as a whole it's kind of an, an imbalanced season not you know, i quite like my um quite like tracking up to 19 games see where you're at in the last 19 games it's 16 games for the world cup which is kind of an ugly number because you've not played all the teams yet um you know you haven't got the season's beginning to take shape then always taken a bit of shape but but it's not really there you know you're not playing everyone twice might be a couple of big games still to come um, and then we break, and then, and then we'll come back on, on Boxing Day. So I, I haven't really got my head around what it's going to look like in November, December. But I think it's going to be a bit of a um, bit of an awkward season. Um, I yeah, I, I'm not entirely sure how, how I feel about kind of breaking the Premier League. So uh, and just European football full stop so readily. And then of course, sorry, the last thing is yeah, just the, the knock on of obviously the World Cup is these big teams are playing weekend midweek, weekend midweek relentlessly pretty much from the end of this month and yeah i i fear i fear for football sometimes it might eat itself just the there's obviously that famous david mitchell's sketch where it's kind of all the football never ends and, and it does it does feel a bit like that even though we've had a summer off well i'm gonna um no i i completely i completely leave that and um i'm a big fan of peep show as well where that that sort of peak david mitchell isn't it really and um we, we sort of in prep for this, we're going to talk about a few sort of overarching ideas or themes. Um, and I'm going to go just slightly off tangent for two minutes on something that came to my mind when you were talking about uh, the Euros over the summer. But just to sort of signpost everyone, I think we're going to have a bit of a chat around Haaland, Ten Hag, um, five subs rule as well, because it'd be really interesting your views on that. But the, one of the things that came out of the, the Euros that I found incredibly refreshing over the summer i know you're obviously at the final and it'd be great just to hear how how you how that day was for you as well was the thing that i found so refreshing apart from maybe a few testy moments in uh, the final against germany was this whole approach uh, in the women's game which is you don't talk back to the ref and you accept the decision and you move on and uh and, and again i don't want to put you on the spot with stuff but i just feel uh, and maybe there's a bit of a sea change coming, or maybe I'm just feeling a bit idealistic as the season starts. But I just was so refreshed by that approach of no back chat, a bit more respect for authority, and how that could potentially feed down into the the game as a whole. Or am I just being a bit too idealistic and uh, expect the 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 male abuse of referees and everything else that comes with it just to continue on unabated? Well, I thought it was it was interesting. It sounds like the Premier League will implement. Um... Kind of the audio between VAR and the referee after the game. So I think Howard Webb's come in um, there, and, and that they're looking to do a change there, which I think I understand is, is done in MLS. Uh, obviously, won't really kind of stop that kind of, uh, I guess, abuse of referees. The idea is to kind of explain decisions a bit more. But I think I don't know potentially humanising referees a little bit might might help with that uh, a little bit. I, I tended to agree on on the women's Euros. I happened to be at the Spain, England Spain game as well, where. There was a Spanish sub who was either booked, I think she was booked, not sent off, um, for getting very mouthy with the referee. I must admit, I kind of enjoyed it. <laughs> it's quite quite entertaining um, to, to see subs getting booked. I always think that's kind of, um, I don't know, I always just find that quite quite a bit funny. But I, I don't know. I, 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 yeah, I think throughout the throughout the Euros, there was a 
um, there was, uh, yeah, that, that kind of respect for referees and so on. Um, in, in the final, I think, I'm not sure, I mean, certainly from the sound, I'm not sure the referee did a great with the game. Uh, I did enjoy the kind of feistiness of the tackling and, and how that escalated to a degree, although I'm not sure the referee ever got control of it. Um, but yeah, no, I, I think I think you might be being idealistic there. Um, and then, yeah, to the other point around around the Euros, I mean, yeah, I was I was very lucky to be in the final. I, um, I think the tickets went on sale a year beforehand for the final and I hoped England might be there, but, but never really kind of fully expected it. And then for, for England to be there was was amazing. And then the whole thing, was, it was one of the best um, experiences, if not the best experience I've ever had at, at a sports event, full stop. Uh, I just thought everything from getting into the grounds uh, to... Uh, I was just lucky to have great seats and, and the whole build up and experience and the noise obviously um, as as it built up was, was absolutely amazing so yeah I, um, I it made me think as well that you know there's been so much talk about us hosting a men's world cup here you know in initially we're talking about well initially we're talking about 2018 weren't we and then 2030 and wherever else in the future now like let's have a women's world cup here I, I think it'd be a phenomenal event um, I, I don't know what's in the pipeline in terms of the next upcoming hosts after Australia and New Zealand but um, it makes a lot of sense for me to, um, that, that England would host that because you could up the stadiums you could up the um, you know the, the size and the quality of the stadiums that be used because now we know that you can fill them um, in the stadium in this country even if it's not um, England playing those games so that, that would be my kind of vision for, for the women's game here um, and then obviously hopefully uh, Women's Super League which I think we'll, we'll discuss in, in later weeks once it kicks off um, we'll be able to ride the crest that way as well Agreed. So, uh, if we pivot into uh, maybe the the Charity Shield and then um, Haaland's performance in that game, and then away at uh, West Ham, and just very briefly, I thought Kira Walsh, by quite some distance, was the player of the tournament um, in the Euros as well. I thought she, Beth Mead was obviously fantastic too, but I thought Walsh, especially for that ball for um, Ella for the the first goal, was just out of this world. And I think they've happened in the men's game. It gets sort of highlighted quite a bit more in truth. But in turning to to Haaland briefly. Um, we talked at the end of last season, didn't we, about um, how he'd potentially fit into the city system. We see, you know, uh, the naysayers have a go uh, based on a few, you know, outlier misses that Haaland has in the first uh, in the charity shield against Liverpool, which City lose. And then uh, we see the flip side of the, the Haaland signing um, away to, to West Ham and him being pretty electric in truth. Yeah, I mean, I... In our kind of models that we have at TFG, I mean, we rated him as the, the fourth best player in the world um, behind Lewandowski, De Bruyne and Benzema. Um, and you know, his record is off the charts in terms of the goals he scored in the Champions League before a certain age. I remember he's done a lot of that. You know, He started off at, uh, was it at Mulder in, in Norway and then you know not at a big five league and then eventually a big five league Dortmund. So to kind of do that so quickly with that trajectory is, is kind of phenomenal. And I, I yeah, I think you'll... Obviously, score a lot of goals in, in the Premier League this season, so I've got no real, um, real doubts that, or never really doubted that he'd succeed. I think one of the interesting questions about a player like Holland, though, for me, is um, he's 21, and so we often think in our mind's eye, a 21 year old, well, what, what could he be at, at 25, 26? And I, I, uh, I don't, don't take this the wrong way. In some respects, I almost think he's peaked, but then like this is the level at which he can achieve, and then he'll probably just be able to sustain it for six, seven, eight years, um, which we should also be, you know, his goals that he'd rack up would be astonishing if he were to do that. In fact, he probably, you know, you can imagine he'd be competing with the likes of Kane and Shearer and so on on, on most Premier League goals. But um, he is, like, already one of the best players, arguably, you know, in the top three or four best players in the world uh, at the moment. And, yeah, no real 
no real doubts he'll he'll sustain that. And obviously, the City have been able to get a real bargain given um, the release clause situation that we discussed at, at length last year as well. So, yeah, I I, I think he'll be he'll be a fright for defenders for a long period of time. I think what will be interesting, obviously, is um, post Guardiola, whenever that happens, how he fits into a different system at, at City, whether they kind of build a team around him because he's he's going to be there for for a long period of time now. Um, but yeah, no, I I am. Um, frightening to see him score and then kind of get frustrated that he didn't get a hat-trick on, on the weekend because so I think it's going to be it's uh, it's going to be a long old season for Premier League defenders I think there probably also has to be a query about whether it's um, you know the the uh, the narrative around what a bargain actually entails for a, a footballer in the sense that obviously it is a bargain in terms of if you look at it just purely in terms of transfer fee but if we're looking at it in terms of obviously the the pretty high commissions that were reported to be paid as well as his weekly salary it's a huge um, um, potential liability outlay for City on obviously, you know, as you said, the fourth best player in the world, possibly soon to be even higher than that. Um, but I always find it funny, the narrative around um, whether a player is a bargain dependent on how high or low the, the transfer fee was rather than the total um, total outlay, which I always find uh, a fascinating one. But um, yeah, I, I just to chime in, yeah, we would obviously completely agree. And I think the... The other context here is just his age and the fact that um, he will... So, yes, the transfer fee is probably smaller than you expect. They'll be able to kind of amortise that and spread that over a long period of time, likely over the, you know, the period he has at the club. And yes, the wages will be high, but you're not investing necessarily in a new strike every three or four years, as we know some other some other clubs in the Premier League have done. So, yeah, I take your point, but I, I do think he will actually end up being a bargain. No, I don't doubt that, actually, for a second, in truth. I mean, he's looked spectacular already. Um, and I think the other conundrum, as you said, is, you know, I think it's gone a little bit under the radar that Pep is at the moment, I believe, as you said, out of contract at the end of the season, I believe. I, I believe. So, um, you know, I, I think as, as Liverpool fans, we were quite relieved to a degree to hear, as I'm sure everyone else, did, that, well, at least Liverpool fans were, that Klopp has extended um, his contract. But I just wonder whether there's that little bit of uncertainty around Pep or, for example, you know, Haaland wouldn't necessarily have signed um, had he known or would know that actually he might have only had one season alongside Pep um, and how those negotiations went. But it, it felt like or sounds like some of the reporting is Pep's going to re-sign and, um, uh, and the dynasty basically continues. Yeah, I know that players do take that into account now. So we've done uh, pieces with uh, with agents before who have requested modelling and kind of insights into what a team's trajectory will be and the impact that a particular coach has and, and also that they're fit for that particular coach. So <clears throat> I'd like to think players in the world in particular are, are considering those deals um, because it can, you know, it can set you back a few years. I mean, he's probably the type of player who would have ended up succeeding anyway, as I say, but um, you do want to kind of factor in those things as a player. Um, and I'm sure City as a club, I know they're historically... Certainly, in my view, one of the one of the best run clubs in in the country when it relates to succession planning, both on the um, side but also the kind of coaching side of things. So I'm sure they they would have thought that through. Um, and there are just some players that are just so good that they fit into to any system. But um, yeah, I, I know uh, players when they're renegotiating, the players when they're when they're moving to clubs do think quite actively about what is what is the trajectory of this team. It's not just about the um, the check that's on the table, as it were. Well, let's flip from one manager to the next, I guess, um, in that um, a lot of fanfare of uh, Ten Hag coming into United from um, Ajax. Um, a, a pretty decent pre-season, you know, 
beating Liverpool 4-0, even though that was very early on and some good performances generally. And then, um, you, you, you know, Brighton, and you know how Brighton and the Potter are going to be, um, you know, technically excellent. It's just whether they can more or less finish off their chances, as we talked about previously in terms of their XG. Um, you know, how, how big a task does Ten Hag have? I know, you know, previous managers and the calibre of those managers almost um, aligns to the, the view that actually it's a pretty big role for him at United um, or task for him at United. And how, uh, uh, how and what do you think your views are on that type of... Um, at that type of task in hand. Yeah, so I think, um, and I've been uh, asked this before, and I think, um, you know, should United have gone for Conte or, or Ten Hag, I suppose, when, when, Con- when you know, back in, back in the autumn, uh, when both arguably were, were available to um, to less degree. And I think the biggest question around Ten Hag has always been, um, you know, how much of his success is him and how much of it is, is Ajax? And, you can obviously draw a really positive correlation. You know, Ajax weren't doing great when when he came in, and he really turned them around. Um, yeah, yes, I think they reached a Europa League final. But if you look at the difference between what he achieved with the team versus um, previous coaches uh, like De Boer and and Petr Bosch had achieved, it, it was nowhere near on that scale. Um, so the, the question is, okay, well, that, that's that's a sign that he's done very well. How much can you put down to players like De Ligt and De Jong? Um, coming through some very good recruitment, like of Huntelaar and, and Dusan Tadic, who who were kind of critical in that um, Champions League run. It's all that's like the hard. That's always the hardest piece of doing managerial evaluations. We've done a lot of them. We've um, did a number of them last year. We've done one over the summer as well, um, where you're trying to evaluate the impact a coach has from from afar, or in our case, you know, from the data. And it's you know you're. One of the things you look at is have they done it at, at multiple clubs? And Ten Hag um, has to a degree, although not not kind of uh, overwhelmingly so. Whereas in Antonio Conte, you can see like everywhere he's gone in, there's just been this upward trajectory of, of performance. And of course, you, you take the question of, you know, there's the upward trajectory and then there's the um, downward curve or the, the kind of ruffling of feathers, which which you kind of have to accept and prepare for. But yeah, it's. I think you know, if you're in United's shoes at the moment, you just have to go. Okay, well, almost irrespective of whether Ten Hag's success was was, or whether he was ten, twenty, fifty, eighty percent of Ajax's success, um, you know, you need to back him in some respects and, and go. Okay, well, we try and build something here. Where you know, some some kind of philosophy of what we're doing that at least works around this coach. May not be perfect, but at least has something that that he can play to. I'm not, and I would never be someone who advocates um, building a club around the manager, but they've gone through quite a few now and they've now probably found someone who's potentially the longest term option who has a track record behind him. Um, yeah, so it, it sounds a bit sitting on the fence. You know, I think United will finish outside the top four this year. Um, you know, obviously quite easy to say after the Brighton defeat. Um, but um, yeah, I, I think there, there are there are definitely three teams probably five teams that, that are stronger than um, in the league at the moment and that you know a good coach will get more out of the existing proper players but it's it's a huge gap to City and Liverpool and you know United aren't far off where Liverpool were when when Jurgen Klopp took over um, and so you know think of the period of time it took for, for Liverpool from 2016 to basically 2019-2020 to, to really get up to that level so it's, it's a kind of three four year project surely. Well, let's talk on that prediction front just really briefly, if that's okay. So you said you thought there were at least three teams significantly ahead, if I'm not misquoting you. You can probably guess that City and Liverpool. Is the third, fourth and fifth, is that Spurs, Chelsea and Arsenal? And if that is the case, 
you know, there's, there's quite a lot of discussion and debate at the moment, isn't there, after Arsenal winning on Friday around, um, you know, who's the more dominant North West London or North North London team um, in terms of uh, Arsenal rivaling rivaling Spurs. Um, where do you stand, and where does the sort of um, the TFG model stand on relative strength between between those two teams right now? Yeah, so we so our model is based on uh, incorporates last season's performance, but then what we also do um, is incorporate squad value to account for kind of changes in in squads over the summer. And that, that has been quite a bit. I think Arsenal. I think I'm right in saying um, just trying to get the data up, but yeah, so Arsenal had the biggest growth in squad value um, in our in our models um, over the course of summer. Obviously, brought in Jesus and Zinchenko and Spurs are second, um, Chelsea are our third, um, and so when we account for that, uh, just on the title, we've got um, City as, as favourites, so we project them a 53% chance of winning the league. Liverpool 28, Chelsea 11, uh, and then Spurs, Arsenal, United, kind of below five. Uh, you could argue Spurs arguably above Chelsea. I think Chelsea are a bit of an unknown really going into the season. Uh, and then top four, we've got City pretty much nailed on, 95%, Liverpool about 90%. Chelsea, again, we've obviously got third um, at 68%. And then Spurs, we've got about 50-50. Arsenal, about 33%, so one in three chance. And then United, about one in five chance for uh, for top four. And then you've got the likes of Leicester, West Ham, who make up relatively small percentages. Um, and so, yeah, that, that's kind of how, how we see it. And, and I wouldn't kind of massively disagree with our model on this, although I have been known to do that. I think um, I, I think there are definitely unknowns about Chelsea. They obviously weren't great at the back end of last year, but there's a lot of context that, that's around that. Um, that you know they've got obviously an unbelievably good coach and, and a good squad that essentially won the Champions League. You know, not about 15 months ago, so it's is a very good team. Um, so yeah, I, I, for me, it's those top four are, are clearly better than than the rest. I mean, Arsenal have improved, but. Um, if you look at the way that Spurs finished last year, if you look at the period under Conte, they were, they were comfortably the fourth best team or in the top four best team. So, um, yeah, I'd be curious to know how, how you see it. Um, well, coming from uh, uh, my in-laws who are all big Spurs fans, um, they're usually pretty bullish, but even more so, I think, after... Um, yeah, I, I just... Uh, after the weekend, you know, Conte's a proper... It feels like Conte's a proper, proper top-class manager that's won stuff and con- continuously delivers. Whether that he can continuously deliver over a longer period than his two or three usual yeah, life cycle, I, d- I don't know the answer to. But it just feels like they've got a very, very strong squad. Um, a couple of very, very good defenders. I think Romeo, or, or whenever I watch him play, he always looks excellent. Um, and uh, Kudasevsky on that right side now looks you know, really, really good. And that's without Rick Arlison and... Son and Kane apparently being on all cylinders, firing on all cylinders. So it just feels like they're quite strong um, more generally, but uh, I could be wrong on that one. Um, and the last one, Omar, that I had for you, which was something we've talked about before. Um, it was fascinating at the weekend to see how managers managed uh, the five sub rule now that's come in. I know if I remember correctly, you're not a big favour of the five sub rule, um, but I'd be really interested in your thoughts on that generally and how, how you think that might play out too. Yeah, you remembered well. Um, yeah, I just think it changes the fundamentals of, of the game. I, I again, I might have said this before on on our chats that you know I could imagine in you know a few years' time your your fifth sub is basically like a throw in specialist um, who comes in and just launches the ball into the box, um, and that's pretty much all they can all they can do. They kind of sit at I don't know, right back and, and just throw things into the box. Like, yeah, I, I don't think that happened at Man City, but I think that could happen at you know, a League One, League Two team, for example. Um, so maybe, well, maybe that is good for the game. I, I don't know. Uh, I haven't actually 
I didn't actually look at the numbers of what happened uh, over the weekend. I think in general, when we looked at this before, I think the other big five leagues have tended to use their subs. And even that period where the Premier League had five subs, I think the other leagues tended to use their five subs a bit more. I think there's often a bit of a consideration in the Premier League that if you're 2-0 up with 10 minutes to go, you still aren't entirely safe. And I, I think I'm right in saying there is some merit in that in that argument, more so in the Premier League than in other leagues. Um so yeah, I, I think it'll be it's an option that obviously a lot of coaches will like. Um, I think even Thomas Frank came out the other day and obviously Brentford came from two 0 down and sort of gives you a lot of options. Which you know, it's it, you know, Brentford would have one of the smallest budgets in the league, so it's not necessarily you know the smaller clubs don't necessarily see it as a um, as a problem. Uh, and I don't necessarily see it like that. I think it's how you how you construct your squad anyway in terms of starting over focused or bench focused. Um, yeah, uh, I, I'd be interested to see where it is. I, I'd be very surprised if we see kind of fifth fourth and fifth subs regularly changing games. I think, you know, you think of who the fourth and fifth sub is coming onto the pitch. They're generally not near the quality of players that are coming off who, who by definition aren't the worst players coming off because, you know, you would have done the one, two, three subs on that. So the kind of divergence between the, the quality of the fourth sub and the fourth player being subbed off can be quite large. Um, yeah, so I'd be surprised if that has a massive impact. But obviously for, for coaches, it might enable players to get a bit of rest and maybe save the odd injury here or there. Great stuff. Well, I think we're, uh, we're at the half an hour mark already. So, um Great to chat, as always, Omar, to all the listeners. If you've got particular topics that you want us to have a bit of a talk about at particular times, then please just uh, reach out to either of us on social media or otherwise. And um, it's great that we're, well, I think it's great we're back. Maybe others might not think it's great we're back, but I'm really happy to be back chatting football as usual. So, uh, Omar, great to chat as always, Paul. Great to chat. Cheers, Dan. Take care. Thanks for listening. You can follow me on Twitter, TikTok and Instagram at footballlaw read my blogs and listen to my previous podcasts via my website danielg.com forward slash blogs. Please do subscribe to the Dundeal Football Podcast, like, share and tag me. If you like the content, if not my voice, you'll probably also like my book Dundeal, an insider's guide to football contracts, multi-million pound transfers and Premier League big business. A bit of a mouthful. It's available to buy in hard copy, digitally via Audible. All links are in the podcast show notes. Lastly, the podcast is powered by 13, which is a fashion brand I've started. All proceeds go towards cancer charity research, and particularly the stellar work done by John Krell, who has helped my mum through some difficult times over the last few years. You can take a look at the merch and hopefully buy a t-shirt, hoodie, cap, or all three. Please do spread the word and go to 13shop.co.uk. That's 13shop.co.uk. Thanks for listening.